Good morning. It's a delight for me and for Stephanie to be here. It's great to be with you this morning. And uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, Father Jerry for his uh, faithful ministry and leadership. Uh, and uh, he is part of a cadre of really great priests in the Diocese of Dallas who do uh, interim uh, work. It's sort of like Mission Impossible, you know what I mean? They get their assignment in the little phone booth and they go to all kinds of places and they do a spectacular job, so I'm, I'm grateful to him. Uh, and I'm grateful all, to you all for your faithfulness uh, on behalf of Jesus Christ here at St. Dunstan's. I have to tell you that uh, we are grateful for your ministry and we, I guess we count on you uh, to be the strong parish that you are in the coming months and years uh, here in Mineola, but also on behalf of our ministry in East Texas in general. I was just thinking it's really nice to have a Sunday morning without a microphone. I was at the cathedral Christmas Eve, and it, we, we enjoyed the service, had a great service, and afterwards I asked my daughter, how was that, you think? And she said, oh, it was great. It was like Christmas carols, sing along with George. Uh, <laughs> I had a really live mic and I'm a little bit like your sign in the parish hall which said, if your voice isn't good, then sing loud. Um, so I sang all the Christmas carols with no skill and great gusto. So um, it's nice to be free of amplification. <laughs> I have one more uh, intro word. Uh, when they teach preaching, they tell you, do what you planned. And don't launch into another sermon that you just thought of. <laughs> Having said that, I'm about to do that. Which is that your first lesson. Boy, what a wonderful lesson. That would be a lesson to read every morning as you get up in the morning. Do you know what I mean? The prophet says, I love you. And whatever deep water you're going through, I'm going to take you across. And I'm going to get you where I mean for you finally to go. And I rule the whole world, all the nations are mine, but I will give them all up because of my love for you. So, um, if you're looking for a spiritual discipline, try that one every morning uh, as we get up. Uh, as for the second one, I preached on that one if I, if I turned my attention to it more. It, it's a very curious reading. It talks about the baptism of Jesus by early Christians who did not yet know about the Holy Spirit. I don't even know what that means exactly. Only that it took a while for the early Christians fully to understand what had happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So um, as I give you the sermon I did prepare, I'm going to try to work that one in there somewhere. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You and I are accustomed to hearing about Jesus. And we are accustomed to attending baptisms. So the Sunday on which we think about the two together should not seem surprising at all. But it actually should be surprising. Think about today's reading. John the baptizer lays out a contrast. He says that he, John, baptizes with water. But the one coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He has in mind the awe-inspiring coming of God in Malachi with fire coming surprisingly to the temple on the last day. In contrast of water baptism, when the Messiah comes, his baptism will be of sterner stuff. 
question actually comes up in Matthew's account of the event. John protests that Jesus should be the one baptizing him. And then Jesus says that all righteousness must be fulfilled. He should undergo this baptism for the time being. His hour is not yet. John is pointing toward the great hour. The time of the conclusion of human history. The coming of God manifest. But Jesus tells him to wait a bit longer. Still, the point John is making is well taken. Why would the one without sin undergo a baptism for the remission of sin? That underlies the uh, mystery of today's reading. As strange as John himself was, what with the denunciations and the skins and the diet of locusts and honey, equally strange to us is the greatest of his ministries, the baptism of his yet greater cousin, Jesus. In contrast to John, the coming of the Messiah, who is Jesus, is to bring the kingdom of God with power. And the things that happen right after Jesus is baptized, well, if you think about that power, some of them are what you would expect, and some of them are not. First of all, the voice of God the Father confirms him as my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This verse refers to two words from God in the Old Testament. The first, Psalm 2, the coronation of King Messiah to rule over the world and over the nations. And the second is from one of the songs about the suffering servant in the prophet Isaiah, where the servant will be a light to those same nations and will suffer at their hands. In other words, we are hearing confirmation and also surprise. This Jesus is the one to come of whom John spoke. But his fire is not just judgment. It is also light, renewal, and forgiveness. What happens next in the Gospel of Luke? Jesus the Messiah goes on to heal the sick and to toss out demons, and we would expect that. But in the very next verses, he is tested in the wilderness and then rejected in his own hometown by his relatives. Already the shadow of the coming cross can be discerned here at the beginning of the gospel. So verses are as John might have supposed, and others are off script. This is consistent with a scene which is going to happen down the road soon, when John the Baptist, confused, sends his disciples to Jesus and says, Are you really, after all, the one to come? Or should we be looking for someone else? We, too, ask the question, how to put these pieces together, and the answer we find will help us not only understand the sacrament of baptism 2,000 years ago, but also today. For we, too, as Christians, as Christians have things that we think we understand, and then Sunday by Sunday, the gospel throws us different kinds of curveballs. So first of all, the gospel changes what we think the end of all things will look like. What is the end of the world? Baptism is not for John simply membership in a group. It is even more than circumcision was in the, in the uh, Jewish uh, Testament. It is getting ready for the glory train. 
It is fire insurance against the coming judgment. And he is the harbinger of that day. And Jesus the one who has actually arrived. But when he arrives, he eats dinner with sinners. He ministers to the unwashed. And he heals the tormented. And in doing all that, he inspires not just welcome, but also conflict. I recently watched on Netflix, one of those cinematic versions of this case of the Gospel of John. And I realized that more than half the Gospel was Jesus arguing with his fellow rabbis. Jesus is not just coming to, coming to talk about the kingdom, but he brings it, and in bringing it, he brings conflict as well. That means that Jesus cannot be simply one part of one's religious life, nor is he one item in a spirituality menu. He is the coming of God himself on the clouds, and God does not share space in terms of his sovereignty. To believe in Jesus is to believe, says John, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, who does and will sit on the throne before whom everyone, not just Christians, will stand. But this fire is of a different kind than John supposed. It is also lowly in spirit. It will not break the thin reed. It is in a man of sorrows, himself tested as we are. That is the real answer to why Jesus had to be baptized. His glory and his rule, these very things are exercised as he does not refuse to enter the fullness of our condition we who are broken and mortal. Second of all, today's gospel tells us that when Jesus went down into the water in the Jordan, he changed this and every sacrament for us. It is not as if there were one thing baptism and John the Baptist and Jesus and the clergy of Dallas all decide when to perform or receive the same thing. John offered the water as a sign of preparation for the terrible day. Jesus went down into the water and made that day a participation in the distress of his children. We go down into the water and it is a participation in Jesus Christ, still, with all that we are and have, so that now, living, we are sharing in his ministry, his death, and his resurrection in the mode of hope. Mutual surrender. That is what baptism in Jesus is about. His surrendering into our condition so that we surrender into His by grace. All the sacraments are Jesus' immersions, full stop. They are all just putting on Jesus Christ. They are all laying down your whole life before the one who says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Baptism is immersion in his incarnate presence in all of human life and our life. The Eucharist, he sat at table with us so that now we can consume his presence, make him our daily sustenance, internalize him body and soul. Marriage, because he has bound himself to the church, many live out their most intimate lives as a sign of his intimate presence with us as Ephesians 5 describes. Unction, he has submitted himself to suffering and death, and we find him there with the 
power to heal now and also the power to promise healing on the last day. Confirmation. Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death so that now we promise to walk behind him there as well. Ordination. He is our one high priest so that some are called to promise to live out their days as reminders that he has by grace made all of you a priestly nation. Penance. He promised to the thief on the cross who repents paradise. So that now we surrender our lives to him as he lives, helps us, lives in us, we who are forgiven sinners who have promised in gratitude to walk the road of radical forgiveness. The sacraments are different. They address different occasions. Some are for all, some are for some people, but they are one. Immersion, surrender into the reality of the incarnate, crucified, and risen Jesus Christ. That is why there are no degrees of Christian. The only distinction is between him and us. And even there, the sacraments tell us that he has entered our condition so that we can, by adoption, enter his by grace. In a similar way, we do have seasons in the church. When I was little, I learned that nice circular chart with the colors of the season of the church year. And we move through Advent to Christmas to Epiphany. But they too are all one. Always to say that we give our days over as a sign of our living for the one who has died and risen for us. Advent to prepare for his coming. Christmas reminded that he is incarnate among us. Lent because we fail him. Holy Week because he died for us. Easter because he is now risen with us. Pentecost because we are immersed in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Second lesson. Ordinary time because immersion is never the end of the matter. Still on this side of the veil. We have to then walk with him as disciples. And in all these seasons, Epiphany, we are reminded as cousins, distant cousins of John, that our sacraments, they are, as with John, men and women, you and I, using water or bread or oil or hands simply to point to the one who is greater than us. The sacraments of the church are in our hands that, but they are inhabited by the risen Jesus Christ. And from his side, they are more than that. Though we have no power to make them so or manipulate them, because of his inhabiting the sacraments, they have power and freedom which come from him, and they are fire and enlightenment, and purification, and renewal. We on our own, as church, we might as well be John, and so would our sacraments be. But because from his side, they are infused, as are our lives, so they and we are full of gratitude to the one who was, and is, and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, who has died, and behold, he is alive. Amen. Amen.